We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Nehemiah. Last week we looked at how the joy in the Lord is our strength. Today we will look at the greatness of God, the goodness of God, and then the graciousness of our God. Nehemiah chapter 9, and we're going to be diving through the entire chapter this morning. And as we get started, I want to share, there was a social experiment done in 2007, January 12th of 2007, a guy by the name of Joshua Bell was playing in a subway. Now, I don't know if we have any classical music fans uh, in the room, but he is one of the most popular composers, most popular violinists. As a matter of fact, the average ticket price to hear him play the violin is $210. And so he did this experiment and asked some people about their response, about their love for classical music. How many people would stop in a subway to listen to him play? There were 1,029 people that passed by. Guess how many people stopped to listen? Seven. Seven people. And one of those recognized him and stayed. She understood the greatness that was before her. Now, I share that to, to tell you this. If you're going to the subway, you probably got to get somewhere. And I can understand why you don't have time for a concert. He had the, the instrument case opened. It looks like for donations. I could see how this could throw you off. But he was playing classical piece after classical piece. Two from Johann Sebastian Bach. This dude's the real deal, and most people never recognized it. So if you pass him on your way to the subway, you miss out on some cool music, some great music, could have been entertaining, but it's not life-changing. However, there are many more people that are passing through life and missing the greatness of God. And that is eternally, eternally life-changing. And so today, this morning, the challenge is that you see the greatness of God. Because as you see the greatness of God, all of a sudden, everything else in life falls into place. When you see the greatness of God, your worship will fall into place. When we see the greatness of God, our obedience will be our response. When you see the greatness of God, you won't have to plead with people, hey, you've got to get in the Bible today. You're going to want to experience and read about how great our God is. And so here's the challenge today. Do not, do not pass through like there's some violinist playing a cool song on your way to the subway. Don't treat God like that. See, behold, be amazed at the greatness of God. And your life will be forever changed. So as we read Nehemiah chapter 9, this is the first part. Recognize the greatness of God. We'll start with verse 1. On the 24th day, on the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. So for 24 days in this month, they were celebrating. The joy of the Lord is their strength. The celebrations are over. The festival of booths are over. And now they're getting back to what they read earlier. They've read the Word and their lives don't match up to the Word. And there's weeping. There's sadness. 
that's where we're picking up. Then we keep reading. Skip on down to verse 5. And the Levites, and you have their names, said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You see, the people understood the greatness of their God in this passage. And maybe you have read this in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 to 31. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is very important. When you're recognizing the greatness of God, what you see in this text in verse 5 is His greatness is eternal. From everlasting to everlasting. The God who created is the God who sustains today. The same God that Nehemiah is talking about hundreds of years ago is the same God we worship today from everlasting to everlasting. His greatness does not wear out. Ours will. Your strength will fade. Buildings will crumble and fall, but the greatness of God will not fade. His greatness is from everlasting to everlasting. Not only is it everlasting, God's greatness is not shared. He does not share His greatness with any other. You see this in verse 6, He alone is the Lord. We'll go back to Isaiah 40, and you're going to notice when you look at the greatness of God, Isaiah chapter 40 is a bedrock chapter. If you want to catch a glimpse of the greatness of our God, read that day in and day out, and behold the greatness of God. Isaiah 40 verse 12 says this, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or the breadth of the heavens in his hand? Who has held the dust in the earth in a bucket, weighed the mountains on the scales, or the hills in a balance? So we take students to the ocean and you look back and it's just wave upon wave upon wave and God in the hollow of his hand measures the water. Or put this up to the sky. The, the, the breath of your hand, put that up to the sky and that's how he measures the heavens. It's not a big deal for our great God. Or we keep reading. Isaiah 40 verse 18. With whom will you compare God? Or what image will you liken him? There is no comparison. Keep reading, 21 to 24 in Isaiah 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. That's his throne. That's his kingdom. All that he created. And his people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught. And reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. So think about the greatest world ruler. And from an earthly perspective, you might think, man, that's pretty powerful. Man, that's pretty great. 
Let's see, compared to the greatness of God, no sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Not that big a deal. Or, again, no comparison to our God. His greatness will not be shared. We keep reading in Isaiah 40, 25 to 26. To whom will you compare me? Who was my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? When's the last time you looked at the sun, the moon, and the stars and asked yourself, who put those there? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name, because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. What an amazing and great God. I've got four daughters. I call them by name, but I lose one of them every once in a while. God with the starry host. Boom, 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 boom. Everything in order. The greatness of our God. Catch a glimpse. The greatness of our God. Last night, there was a slam dunk contest. Uh, a guy named Mac McClung won. Had a pretty cool dunk. Uh, can elevate. Gets up. Hits the backboard. Puts a dunk down. And you have these judges that put up the scores. Right? They're ranking the greatness of the dunk. And it's amazing the different response to their creativity and the greatness of a dunk. The better the dunk, the greater the dunk, the better the response. The crowd goes wild. The other NBA players are getting up and celebrating. And it's an unreal thing. But as good as it was last night, the commentators would always go back to a few names. Dominique Wilkins, the human highlight reel. Vince Carter one of the best dunkers of all time, and then you have Michael Jordan, who just decides he's going to jump from the free throw line and dunk the basketball. You see, there are comparisons, and there's a debate on who's the greatest dunker. What was the greatest dunk of all time? But you want to know where there is no debate? When it comes to the greatness of God. There is absolutely no comparison. But you want to know what is a strange thing? How blind we are to his greatness. When you have a God whose greatness is incomparable, how do we spend so little time with him? How do we focus so little on our great God? Think about your life this past week. Think about the things you spent your time on. What did you think about? What moved you emotionally? The things you consider great are what you'll fill your time with, what you'll spend your money on, and what you think about most deeply. That's what affects your emotions. That's why it's so important that we see the greatness of God. There is absolutely no comparison to his greatness. And then this first few verses of Nehemiah 9, they help us see also his greatness in creation and his sustaining power. And whenever you read that, that should trigger you to Colossians. That should bring to mind Hebrews chapter 1. Whenever you see creation and sustaining, he created, he sustains, he created, he upholds, we should be thinking, oh yes, this is Jesus. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, For in Jesus all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's what this means. You were created by God. The greatness of God is seen in his creation. 
You are part of that creation. God created you exactly how you are wired. He has a plan for you. His love is poured out on you. Created in His image. But then we also read in Hebrews 1.3, not only did He create, He also sustains. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. What an amazing thing. God speaks and we survive. God's word and we have breath in our lungs. The next breath that you take is because Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of his power. There's no comparison to his greatness. Now, what does this mean for you and me? I think there's two applications from this. And I, there's more. This isn't exhaustive, but there's two that I see, and number one is God's greatness demands our worship. When you behold God's greatness, the reflex of the heart is worship. When you see the eternal God, worship Him. When you see His creation, give credit to the Creator. It also, it also reminds us of our accountability. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, after comes judgment. Or, in Romans 12.11-12, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Make no mistake, you will see the greatness of God one day. And whether the people we come into contact with ever see it this side of heaven, one day they will. And it will not change the fact, no matter what you believe, what you say, how you live, you will give an account to your Creator. So will I. That's the greatness of our God. So what does that mean for, for us? There should be a hunger for the Word. You see this in Nehemiah. Look at, look at verse 3. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. So they see the greatness of God, everlasting to everlasting, creator and sustainer of the universe. There's no one compared to him. And what's the response of their heart? They stick to the word for three hours. If we go in the word till 1230, people get upset. Why? Because we think lunch is greater than God. Because we think our time is greater than God. That's exactly why. Or we, we keep reading, not only did they have a hunger for the word, they also confessed and they also worshipped. And they spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. So I think we spent, what, 20 minutes in songs? They spent three hours. So can you imagine getting here at 1045 for our worship service and staying until 445 this afternoon? I'll tell you what. In some places, that is happening. And when you see the greatness of God, it's not that hard. For, for instance, the young guys. Is it hard to spend six hours on a video game? No. Time flies. We did a Madden tournament. It took us two Wednesdays. Minute after minute, hour after hour. No one complained about the time. As a matter of fact, they complained a little bit. It was too short because we had to do two-minute quarters. How about golf? I know we got some golfers in the room. I'm a terrible golfer. I average about one time a year, and it takes me about 
four and a half hours to get through 18 holes. I can schedule half a day to spend at the golf course chasing a little white ball around the golf course. Takes forever. But you want to know what? I never complain. I enjoy the weather. I enjoy my bad swings and my good swings. Four and a half hours out on a golf course. What about football? The Bengals were in the AFC championship, but did you know there was an NFC championship too? And a lot of people watched both games. Guess how long that is? Six hours. Do I have any shoppers in the room? Some can go shopping, call it a shopping spree, and go all day. They don't grow tired or weary. They just go to the next store. It's funny how we can spend our time, isn't it? What you see here, the people just caught a glimpse of the greatness of God, and for three hours they're reading the Word, and they're amazed at the greatness of God. And then for three more hours, they're seeing how their lives don't match up to the Word of God, so they confess, and they worship. That's when revival breaks out. That is when revival breaks out. So, recognize the greatness of God, but number two, remember the goodness of God. Remember the goodness of God. And, and this is the majority of the chapter. The majority of the chapter, and just for the, the sake of time, we're not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to read a lot of it. And you see this in stages. This is, chapter 9 is a beautiful commentary of the Old Testament. Genesis 1 and 2 summed up in here. The whole book of Exodus summed up in here. All throughout the prophets summed up in here. The wilderness summed up in this chapter. It's an awesome thing to have a commentary from Nehemiah inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is how you interpret the Old Testament. And you see this with God's goodness. You see his goodness in creation, we've already read about that, that he created the heavens and earth. But it's very important that we understand we aren't here by accident. You were created by an awesome God. That means something. We see that God's good. We see his beauty and creativity in creation. Number two, we see God's goodness and the calling of Abraham. You see this in verse 7 and 8. He calls Abraham, he changes his name to Abraham, he makes a covenant with him, gives a promise to him. That his descendants will see a land that he has set out for them. That his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And what you see in God calling a people to himself, a family to himself, you see God is good in that he keeps his promises. You see God's goodness at Mount Sinai, verses 13 to 18. The goodness of God, his word, he gives instructions for living life. Don't guess on what you should do. Don't guess on what you shouldn't do. You don't have to. God has made it clear how He expects us to live and glorify and worship Him. You operate best living according to His Word. Regret, hurt, heartache comes from not following God's Word. And so you see the goodness of God in giving His Word to His people, and that's what happens at Mount Sinai. You see God's goodness in delivering his people out of Egypt. That was verse 9 and 12, right before Mount Sinai. You see Abraham lived, and then another, and then another, and then another. And eventually you get to Joseph. Joseph goes to Egypt because his brothers treated him wrongly. But God used it for his good to save his people. But in Egypt, they're put in the bondage, and God's people cry out to God. God hears them, and with mighty hand, rescues his people out of Egypt. 
Do you see the goodness of God that he hears you? He hears his people. Rescues them out of Egypt, gives them the word at Mount Sinai. You see his goodness in the wilderness. And I'm always amazed by this. But then I see what, what we deal with, and we're not much different than God's people. At Mount Sinai, they have this word. They see this, this awesome God who delivered them from Pharaoh. And they get on the brink of the promised land, and they look out, and they're like, yeah, we can't do that. Those people are too big. All of a sudden, they saw the greatness of their enemies and forgot about the greatness of their God. But you want to know what God does in the wilderness? He doesn't say, forget you. He doesn't say, hey, we're going to move on, try different people. He provides for them. He sustains them. He guides them. How awesome would it be for 40 years to have clothes that never run out? To have shoes that the soul never goes out of? To be guided by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day? Rain forecast? Yeah, that's bread falling from heaven. So you don't starve. God provides that. Oh, you're thirsty? Just touch this rock. Water flows. Quench your thirst. That's the goodness of God. That's what you see in the wilderness. And Nehemiah reminds his people about the goodness of God. He keeps going. Not only is he good from delivering them from Egypt and good at Mount Sinai and good in the wilderness, he's also good in the promised land. Nehemiah 9.23 you made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land you told their parents to enter and possess. They captured four to five cities, took positions of fertile land. And then the last part of verse 25, they ate to full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. The people in the land got it promised. Reveling in God's goodness. And then we see things go wrong, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But you see God's goodness in exile. He's patient while his people are taken captive. And eventually they turn to him. And even in exile, God does not abandon his people. Despite being nothing but good to his people, and in return, the people acting wickedly, God still does not abandon his people. That is the goodness of God. A couple applications when you just see God's goodness throughout the history. God is good, and it's not dependent on his people being good in return. Isn't that an amazing fact? God's goodness is always good because he is an awesome God, great in compassion. That's the grace of our God. He treats us not as our sin deserves. So a couple applications, just talking about the, the goodness of God. God's goodness enables us to trust his promises. Have you ever made a promise and you've not been able to keep it? Sometimes we're limited. We're limited in our power. We're limited in our knowledge. Sometimes we can keep dates. Sometimes we can't keep dates. Sometimes we have the power to keep a promise. Sometimes we don't. God never has that problem. And what you see with God's goodness is he always keeps his promise. So a couple things I trust. I trust that my sin is forgiven. I trust that Jesus has a place prepared for me for all eternity. That's in his word. It's a promise to me. I believe that God is working for my good and his glory. That's a promise. Despite my circumstances, God is working for my good and his glory. 
I cling to those promises. I trust that he'll keep his word because he is a good God. But not only that, God's goodness calls us to humility and obedience. God's goodness calls us to humility and obedience. We, we read this in Psalm 25, 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. The proper response to God's goodness is obedience to his word. And yet what we see again and again throughout history is people respond to God's goodness with wickedness. Number three, God's goodness reminds us of his presence. Nehemiah saw the goodness of God. You guys remember this? Nehemiah is talking about how good God is because he lived it. He knows God is good. Because remember, he was in captivity. He was the cupbearer for a king, but God heard his prayer from a foreign land. The goodness of God shows that God is present with his people. What else was God there for? Remember the project, that great work that God had called him to? They completed it in 52 days because God strengthened their hands. That's the goodness of God. Keep going. God's goodness should lead us to gratitude. James Hamilton put it this way. They received everything but appreciated nothing. They received everything but appreciated nothing. Psalm 107 puts it this way. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Here's the deal. Everybody in this room has experienced the goodness of God. My question is, how are you responding to his goodness? I'll go first. Number one, personally, how God has been good to me. Uh, this past week, I went to Asbury. Thursday night, unbelievable things are going on. But it's nothing spectacular in that there's no bright light shining down from the skies. There's no audible voice of God speaking. And yet you see hearts are turning to God. They're awake to the things of God. There is a revival that is happening. Sleepy people are waking up to the things of God. They're catching a glimpse of the greatness of God and the goodness of God. But this is what I was reminded of. Back in 2000, my senior year at high school, there were two colleges I was considering. One was Asbury, one was Thomas More. And I remember going on the tour at Asbury. And we're sitting in the balcony, and I remember the tour guide saying, saying, yeah, back in 1970, there was a revival in this place. And he goes, you know, we're praying for something like that to happen again. And he goes, I don't know if we'll ever see it. And it was just a passing statement, but for whatever reason, I thought, how cool would it be to be in this place when God shows up? I had no idea that in 2023, God, did you know the service is still going on? Today's the last day, but day 24 hours a day, they're worshiping God. They're singing songs to God. They're reading the Word. They're confessing sin. So three hours compared to since February 8th. Every hour, that service is still going on. And I just sat in there and I thought, man, I'm so thankful for how God has been good to me through the years. Thankful that He sent His Son to die for my sin. I'm thankful that God never gave up on me in the process of walking with him. Despite my sin, despite my shortcomings, God says, I, what I began in you, I will complete. The goodness of God. Look at what he does for you personally, but then also as a church. When we look at the goodness of God. Um, 2013, uh, Redemption Church, uh, we tried to start. Moved to Covington. And we're still alive. Most church plants don't last three years. 
Redemption Church is. There's a couple of things I can remember sitting thinking, I have no idea how we're ever going to survive. It was just my family. We didn't have a house. Couldn't find a house in Covington. It's hard to find a house when you don't have a full-time job. I didn't think about that when I stepped down as a a full-time pastor. But you want to know what I was aware of? God had called. God will provide. God is good. Well, that's not the only history that we celebrate. Ashland Avenue has a history. And did you know, in 2015, our paths crossed. And I have the newsletter to prove it. July 2015. This is uh, Wes Roy. Let's faithfully pray for our friends with Redemption Church. They begin their worship services on Sunday, July 5th at 1 p.m. May their tribe increase in wisdom and numbers in their new work. How cool is that? Well, we keep going, and a year later, we have Pastor Wilton Shelton give us a shout-out. He talks about how (laughs) we have made it to our one-year anniversary. Here's our partnership with them, as I believe, been a positive experience. I congratulate Brother Ben Brown, the people of Redemption Church, on this anniversary. May God receive the glory. Then in 2017, as we were leaving to a, a different location down on Oakland Avenue, I think it was, it was pretty cool because though this formal partnership, this is uh, Pastor Wilton again, though this formal partnership will end, it is my hope and prayer that the relationship between our two churches will continue to remain strong. Guys, that's God's goodness. That's God's goodness. I don't think anybody could have guessed in 2017 what that relationship would look like. And then I dug a little deeper. History of Ashland Avenue. And I thought there's just some, some really good stuff in here. I just want to share just a, a little bit with you. 1948, John Huss, I believe it's John Huss. I don't think it's John Hughes. John Huss realized there was a need for a religious influence in the area of Latonia Terrace. Tonya Baptist decided that the mission should be started. Therefore, April 11, 1948, a busload of Sunday school teachers and students, numbering 25 in all, arrived at the administration building complex and began having Bible study. That's right down the street. That building is still there. 75 years later, we're still here. Our mission hasn't changed. Within two months, the average attendance was 34, and then it doubled. It was decided the mission needed a name. On January 5, 1950, the mission was officially dubbed the Hour of Power Chapel. That's a pretty cool name. Hour of Power Chapel. In June of 1950, ground was broken for the building of the chapel. wonder what ground that was. The mission had grown into a congregation of 109. They realized that the chapel was needed. The cornerstone of the building was laid August 13, 1950. If you walk outside, you go to the front door of what we call the educational building, you'll see the cornerstone from 1950. I thought this was interesting. In 1955, independence from Latonia Baptist uh, was needed. They wanted to be their own church. And the name change was brought to the attention of the business meeting. Name was changed to Ashland Avenue Baptist Church. Guess what the vote was? 43 to 3. 43 to 3 for the the name change back in December 4th, 1955. 
And you can see throughout the history, I'll just highlight a few things. In 1988, this church laid the groundwork for the Crisis Pregnancy Center. And in 1989, the New Hope Ministry Center for Women was opened. Ashland Avenue, underneath the leadership of Steve Pettit, grew to a church with over 700 members. But it's mentioned in this history, and this is what I thought was awesome. However, the most important change has been and is continuing to be the transformation from the church from a mission to a church with a mission, God's mission. How awesome is that? And people, we're still on that mission. We're still on that mission. Latonia Terrace is still our mission field. Latonia is our mission field. Holmes High School is our mission field. We got to get the gospel to the people. But do you see how God has been good to us? What I encourage you to do tonight, and I don't know if we have many journalers in the room, but write down how God has been good to you personally. How God has provided for you, how he has sustained you, how he's been patient with you. How he has not treated you the way your sin deserves. How he's provided salvation in Christ. Love for you seen on the cross, which leads us to our, our third and final point. Rely on the grace of God. Rely on the grace of God. So you heard about the goodness, but what we skipped was the response of the people. Now, listen, we're going to pick up the pace here because I, I know uh, time is fleeting. But the good news is all of my family's back in the nursery. And I promise you, they care more that you hear the word of God than a few extra minutes with the kids. I want you to hear this. Rely on the grace of God. Rely on the grace of God. And this is what I mean. You see this in Nehemiah 9, 16, to the first part of verse 19. God gets them out of Egypt. He rescues them. He splits a sea in front of them. And how do the people respond? They create a golden image and bow down and worship that thing as if it delivered them. How does God not wipe them off the face of the planet? How could you give credit to something you created? A golden image. But that's not God's response. And then in the promised land, they ate to their fill, were well nourished. They reveled in their great goodness. Listen to how they responded. But they were disobedient, rebelled against you. They turned their back on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. That's how they responded while living in the promised land. Reveling in the goodness of God. How do you think God responded to them there? Well, verse 27 tells us how he did. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. In his great compassion, he rescued. All right, so rescued from the enemies, you think all is good, right? The goodness of God. Listen to how the people respond. Verse 28, but as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you gave them to the hand of their enemies, and they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again... You heard from heaven and your compassion, and in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. That's grace. And then you get to 30 and 31. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the 
neighboring peoples, but in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And then you get to present day, where we're reading in chapter 9. So he goes through this whole history of God's people, how they responded to God's goodness, they acted, acted wickedly, rebelled against God. What do you think Nehemiah banks on? What do you think he relies on? The grace of God. You see this, Nehemiah calling out to God once again because the people are in great distress. And that's how verse 37 ends. Right? Nehemiah rebuilt the wall, but he's still under the rule of a foreign king. And he's longing for God to move again. And he understands he doesn't deserve it and the people don't deserve it, but what does he rely on? The grace of God. Now, this is why this is important. The bad news is people have not changed. The bad news, people have not changed. We don't deserve the goodness of God. That's why we read Psalm 103 this morning. We have a God that doesn't treat us the way our sins deserve. He takes our sin and separates them from us as far as the east is from the west. That's the God we serve. That's grace. I want you to see this. This is what our sin deserves. Romans 3, 10 to 12 says, As is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who sees God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is not one who does good, not even one. So you look in the room, and you might say, well, I'm a little bit better than so-and-so. I didn't do this or this or this. I'm all right here. None of us. None of us meet the standard. The summary of that is in Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We don't get to enjoy the greatness of God for all eternity because of our sin. Our sin separates us. That is the bad news. God's people has a track record of messing it up. But that's not the end of the story. Because the good news is also still true in that God has not changed. What Nehemiah banked on was the compassion of God. What you and I bank on is the grace and compassion of God. Do you understand that? That your sin separates you from God. We're not worthy of heaven. We're not worthy of His presence. We've all gone astray. That's what we see in Isaiah 53. It says, But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid on Him, and by His wounds we are healed. Whose wounds? Whose wounds? Jesus's. So now you see how great and how good God is in the face of Christ. And that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. That's unbelievable grace. Unbelievable grace. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, that's the awesome part of our God. When you see how awesome and great He is and He's continually good to His people and we turn from Him, He doesn't say, forget Him. He says, I'm coming to get you. 
And when we couldn't get to God, he came to us. And he laid his life down on a cross. And he paid for our sin. So that now there's no condemnation for you or for me. But it's not because we're good. It's because God is gracious. Do you see how great and how good our God is? If you've never responded to the grace of God, today is a good day to do that. Confess your sin to God. Tell him everywhere you messed up. He already knows it, but he hasn't abandoned you. He sent his son for that exact purpose. He is our rescuer. Jesus shows us how gracious God is. Will you trust in him to save you? And then if you're here and you've experienced the grace of God, ask God to help you live the rest of your days in amazement to his greatness. Don't be overwhelmed by things that don't last, things of this world. It's all passing away. Be amazed at the greatness of God. And then run through how he has been good to you and give thanks to him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, right now I ask for you to move. Pray that you open up hearts, open up blind eyes to see the glory that belongs to you. Father, we thank you for your grace. I pray that if anyone is here, to, they do not know you, that today they'll run to Jesus. That they'll find that he paid for their sin so that they may have life in you. I pray that they find that their deepest desires will be satisfied only in you. So help them turn from their sin, die to self, and live for you. Father, I pray for your church. I pray that you help us wake up, help us behold your greatness, and we thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.